0: Good morning. I want to preach today on the theme of strongholds. Strongholds. Strongholds in your life. You ever hear uh, Christians talk about strongholds? What is a stronghold? Well, a physical stronghold is uh, a place that has been extra reinforced. Imagine the enemy has a particularly well-defended or well-guarded base. It's as if the enemy has said, now look, We will cede this land to you, but you will not take our stronghold. So Christians, when they talk about a spiritual stronghold, they take that physical idea and they apply it to the spiritual. You might say that a spiritual stronghold is an area of our life, inside or out, that seems to be extra fortified by the enemy. Uh, It could be... Uh, something that's outside us, uh, like the opposition we encounter. You know, you've got a friend or or a loved one and you share the gospel with them and you get all this resistance. You go, what's going on here? It's It's like they'll listen to you on anything, but there's a stronghold around that. It could be something on the inside, like a certain sin we continually struggle with. I think most Christians can relate to this. You're not alone. A Christian, obviously, is someone who has been rescued, someone who's been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into a brand new kingdom. First Peter calls it into his marvelous light. So now we've been transferred into this new kingdom, and we're learning how to live under the new king's rules, rules of peace and joy and love and holiness and some things, it's amazing, when, when people become a Christian, some things are easily transferred and, and brought into the, uh, transformed and brought into the new kingdom. It's as if some, some sin or some habit, just like that. I've heard people say that. When God saved me, he took away this particular desire and I never wrestled with it again. I think, man, that's awesome. That happens, sometimes very easy. Others, they, they come along, but they come along slowly, right? So that there's some habits or some, some things in your life, and they're transformed, and they're brought under the lordship of Christ. But it took a long time, but it happened. And then there are the strongholds. And it feels like no matter what you do, You long for freedom in this area. You long for victory. But it's like there is a reinforced garrison that the world, the flesh, and the devil has said, no, you can't have this. It feels like this area will never be under the control of God. You know I'm talking to you. If you have a spiritual stronghold, if sometimes your prayers go like this, it's me again, Lord, and it's that again. Over and over, strongholds. And everybody knows one stronghold is enough to wreak havoc on your whole life. We know people like that. It's like they they got so many good things going for them. They got so many things under control. But it's that stronghold. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I I, I, I know of a guy. You might say he's a, a, let's call him a friend of a friend. Let's call him Pete. And for this guy, his stronghold is fear. It's got a grip on him. And he's he, so talented and capable in all these other areas. But he's got this stronghold of fear. And his fear of what other people are th- going to think or what other people are going to do, his fear has cost him some of the deepest relational pain imaginable. He has wept over it. It has cost him dearly. He just can't seem to overcome it. It's a stronghold. I know another guy. We'll call him Joe. And he's got a stronghold of pride. And that pride has blown up his family relationships. It has done virtually irreparable damage to his family. He was forced to move away, and that pride crept into his work life. He lost his job. Dude ended up in prison. Why? Strongholds. They got a stronghold on you. I know a lady, y'all, I'm not, I'm not making this up. She has been to divorce court not once, not twice, not three times. Five trips to divorce court. And you look at that, divorce five times, and you feel pity. You go, bless her heart. But so many, so many talents, so many things. But it's this inability to make marriage go right. There is a stronghold in her life. And she'll be the first to tell you. It breaks her heart, the people who love her. It's a a trail of emotional wreckage. What about you? Can I ask you this morning? Is there a stronghold in your life? You look, is it bitterness? Oh, bitterness can be a stronghold. You look at all God has done for you. You look at all the blessings in your life. You love him. You know he loves you. And yet you still can't seem to shake bitterness and resentment. And you ask yourself, how is this that strong in my life? Is it? Is it pride? How is pride so powerful? Such a force in my life. Why is greed, lust, what about an addiction? Fear, fear can really feel like a stronghold. Well, our our Bible passage today is a word for anyone who feels like they're living with a stronghold and what to do. It's about an ancient stronghold. The word comes up twice in our text, and it's a word for you. And I hope it's a word of hope. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, a word for us about strongholds. Our text begins in verse 1, and we have finally, finally come to the coronation of David as king. Now, for those of you who are uh, maybe in for the holiday weekend or you're just visiting, you cannot appreciate why I use the word finally. For those of you who've been in this series with us since May, you can understand why I'm using the word finally, David is king. (laughs) You think it's been a long time coming for you. Imagine how long this has felt for poor David. He's been waiting on this for 20 chapters. Hadn't he? He was anointed 20 chapters ago. When I was a little shepherd boy, they went and got me, and some guy poured oil on my head. I think his name was Samuel. Said something about fulfillment of Hannah's prayer. Next thing you know, I'm in a cave with Saul trying to kill me. It's been 20 chapters, but here we go. 2 Samuel 5, 1. Then all the tribes of Israel... There's been civil war. But now all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "Behold you, excuse me, behold we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel." So we need a little background. I wanted those all those verses on one screen so you could see we need to do a little review. Does everyone know what's happened before this? In previous chapters, we all saw the fall of tall Saul. Seems Dr. Seuss has invaded my sermon notes briefly. But we all saw the fall of tall Saul, right, y'all? All Now, after the fall of Tal Saul, there was a time of civil war. Saul had one son who escaped. Remember Jonathan, he was killed, the other sons. He had one son, this this Ish-bosheth, who apparently escaped the battle of Gilboa, vies for the throne, and I will leave it to you to read the fascinating story of intrigue and bloodshed in chapters 2, 3, and 4. But eventually, all the opposition, all the tribes, there's this civil war among all the tribes. They eventually unify around David, and they crown him king and they do so for three reasons you see the first verse behold we are your bone and flesh first reason you're one of us God said in his law your ruler must come from the people of God check number two you're the one look at verse two you're the one who's been faithfully leading us to victory all along Saul was the king but you're the we know we know you're the one who've been fighting and leading and number three and most importantly God has promised this this is God's word See, God, the Lord said, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Now, I just, this is a brief aside, but even at his coronation, notice they don't, and this is very wise, they don't use the word king, do they? They use the word shepherd, and they use the word prince. Why? A shepherd leads the sheep, but he doesn't lead from a far off distance. The shepherd lives with the sheep, and he leads them as one of them. And whose sheep are they? They're the Lord's sheep. And a prince, a prince is certainly a ruler, but we all know if somebody's a prince, that implies the king is still alive. And I think they use the word prince very uh, intentionally to remind everyone, this is David, and yes, the king over Israel, but technically he's the prince. Why? Because who's still alive and who's still the king? Yahweh. Because God is the king. Uh, that, uh, the reason I take that aside, that is a good word for anyone in a position of leadership. And we have many leaders in this church. Remember, all leadership is stewardship. They're not your sheep, they're God's sheep. And God has called to remember that God has called to remember that at best we are princes or princesses, but the reigning king is always God. But here it is, that fateful moment. The coronation, verse 3. So all, has been 20 chapters in the maker's making. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old. Ah, just like the true and better David who was to come. He began his public leadership at age 30 when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, Jerusalem? I haven't heard much about Jerusalem. That's not a particularly, well, certainly it's not a Jewish city at this point. Jerusalem, he reigned, so that's a little foreshadowing. He reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And everybody can take a deep breath. We've been in this series a long time. David is finally king. <laughs> Whew. Uh, I do, I do just just want to point out that um, for all the buildup, for everything that had to happen for David to become king, the coronation took one verse. Life is like that, isn't it? What do I mean? Sometimes the most monumental events in life, the events themselves happen so quickly. I'm thinking now of a wedding. Think about all that has led up to a wedding and think about all that will come after. And yet the wedding, the vows and the exchange of, you know, I mean, what, it takes a few minutes maybe? A better example might be a baptism. Think about those baptisms we witnessed this morning, think about all that had to happen before baptism. God saves a person, and, and they love the Lord. And, 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 and sometimes uh, they, they walk with the Lord for a while, and, but, but eventually they, they go through the waters of baptism. And think about all that comes after that baptism, church membership and serving and growing. It always strikes, every time I do a baptism, it strikes me. There's so much spiritual reality happening, so much buildup, so much to come, but the actual baptism itself takes just a second. That's what we have here. Don't let the brevity of this little verse fool you. David's been waiting 20 chapters, and at some point along the line, surely David has wondered, is this ever going to happen? Are the promises of God true? But here it is. Hannah's song from way back in 1 Samuel 2 has again come to life. God has humbled the exalted, exalted the humbled, and little David, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who slew the giant with a stone and would not touch the Lord's anointed, finally Anointed king. You say, okay, okay, but what does, what does that have to do with strongholds? What's your point? Well, we're getting to strongholds, but I have two points of application. Way back in 1 Samuel, that prophet, way back in 1 Samuel 16, he anointed little David as the once and future king. Everybody got it? God promised David he would see him through to his destiny as king. And along the way, there has been intense opposition. So here's what you got to remember about the promises of God. They can be opposed. That doesn't mean they're false. Opposition doesn't change the promises of God. Think about the promise of God to David. Think about all that that promise has weathered. The the, the violence of the Philistines, the venom of Saul... The destruction of the Amalekites, the death of his best friend Jonathan, the rebellion of the north after Saul's death, and yet here stands the fulfilled promise of God. All I'm trying to tell you is if you find yourself in a world where it looks like the promises of God are being fiercely opposed, fierce opposition does not diminish the promise of God. You can count on it. The other thing, God's promise is true despite intense opposition, and time doesn't change the promise of God what do I mean by that his promises are true despite chronological distance Well, <laughs> what do I mean at any point David could have said look I know I've got this promise of God on my life and I know God did this great thing but that was way back when I was a boy that was a long time ago I don't know if that promise is still valid I know adults who feel that way have you ever felt that way I, look, I, I, I felt God's presence, but that was, at, that was at youth camp, and that was a long time ago. I was a teenager, I was down there at Shaco Springs, and I felt God so real, but listen, preacher, that's been a long time since those days. Well, what changed? So, so, so I'm sorry, did the chronological distance change the promise of God? Well, I, you know, I was, somebody would tell me, I was a little girl at Vacation Bible School, and I heard God call my name, but that was a long time ago. I was, you know, I was in college, they say, years ago, and God called me to missions, but, oh, those promises are really old now. You're not hearing me. 3,000 years does not erode the reliability of the Word of God. There's no amount of chronological distance. God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date in the small print. You can't say, well, this is good through, sell by, (laughs) use by, There's no expiration date on the promises of God. That should make a difference in the way you read your Bibles and you take seriously what God has done in your life. God is going to get you through to that heavenly city, not because you're unshakable, but because the word of God is unshakable. Listen, this story is 3,000 years old. Has it dawned on you? There is no expiration date to the promise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So opposition and chronological distance do not diminish The promise of God. Time cannot dissolve them. The enemy cannot sabotage them. His promises are sure and true. No cap. God's promises can be old and they can be opposed, but the one thing a promise of God can never be is false. So, you're going to need to remember that because we're coming to the stronghold. (laughs) Well, no sooner had David had that crown resized for his head size... Then he decides to set out to take a city for his capital. And I imagine he's had his eye on this city for a long time. Look at verse 6. And the king, that's David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Ah, Jerusalem owned by the Jebusites. Now, we got to do a little background here. When you and I think of Jerusalem, if you're like me, you probably think of the Holy Land, right? You, you, you think of, I mean, we cannot imagine Jerusalem without being a part of Jewish identity, right? We think of temples and prophets. Maybe you picture Jesus preaching there in the temple. Maybe maybe you think about the New Testament church being born at Pentecost. Or maybe you imagine modern Jerusalem, a a bustling modern city with these massive religious implications, pilgrims from three monotheistic religions all over the world descending upon Jerusalem. Not this at all. When David looks at Jerusalem in 1,000 years B.C., he sees none of that. He sees, to use Max Lucado's description, a millennium-old cheerless fortress squatting defiantly on the spine of a ridge of hills. Massive walls, strong towers, an impregnable fortress. Not the holy city of the Jews. Jerusalem is a fortress of the Jebusites. And nobody messes with the Jebusites. You think I'm kidding? Seriously. Philistines fought the Amalekites. Philistines fought the Israelites. The Israelites fought the Philistines. The Israelites fought the Amalekites. And right in the living, in the, if you can picture Judah to the south, Israel to the north, right there is Jerusalem. And in the middle of this, nobody, not the Amalekites, not the Philistines, not nobody messes with the Jebusites. The Jebusites are like a coiled rattlesnake in the desert. And everybody's like, I believe we'll just leave them alone. They named the city Jerusalem, City of Peace. Why? Because nobody messed with them. <laughs> so you got these Jebusites, like a coiled rattlesnake, uh, known for child sacrifice, unspeakable occult practices. And in a way, here's the worst part. If, 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 if you're David, if, if, you're, if you're an ancient uh, uh, Israelite, The very fact that the Jebusites are there defies the living God. Remember, God God promised to give the land to his people 800 years ago, way back in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, and, and, and in fact, he mentions this over and over. He mentions this promise. If you know your Old Testament, this will sound familiar. Over and over, he mentioned, I won't take time to read all of them. I'll just show you a couple. In Genesis 15, he tells Abraham, on that day, the Lord made a covenant covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. They're always at the end of the list, as if to say, yeah, and them. Now, when the people of God got in big trouble, they found themselves in bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh. On the backside of a mountain, where a man named Moses was tending the sheep of his father-in-law, God lit a burning bush and reaffirmed that covenant promise. He said, "I, I haven't given up. I, I, the people are enslaved. The people are in bondage." And here's what he said: The Lord said in Exodus 3, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering." And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. You know this one. A land flowing with milk and honey. right? He's going to send them to the promised land. And I'm going to take them, here we go again, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go, it would be fun this afternoon to go back, look up Jebusite, and you see how many times in the list they're always last. Like, and the Jebusites. (laughs) Well, sure enough. Now, we can go on and on. It's reiterated many times. And, and, And when the people come into the promised land, the conquest of the promised land is recorded in Joshua. And sure enough, they start winning. They start displacing these pagan people. Oh, but there was one they couldn't displace. It was a stronghold. Joshua had some victories, but could not seem to occupy and hold Jerusalem. Benjamin couldn't hold Jerusalem. And so when they record the, 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 the record of the conquest of the promised land, we get this amazing list. And so-and-so drove out so-and-so, and so-and-so drove out so-and-so. And then ominously, we get this in Judges 121. This is, this is pre-David, pre-Samuel. This is Judges 121. <clears throat> But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. What'd you do? What'd you do with them? Was there constant? So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They just sort of, white flag, there's your stronghold, it's Jerusalem, you're the Jebusites, looks like we can't win, we'll just live with it. Now there we go. Now, now, Now we've got to the application of the sermon. Do you see it? That's a stronghold, y'all. A stronghold in your life, that that to me is so sad. Here they are, the people of God. Man, they've seen the promises of God. And yet that stronghold seems so invincible that they just give up and they just sort of assume, watch this, they assume, watch this, they assume, I guess we'll always just have to live with it. That's where a stronghold brings a person. They get to a point where they go, honestly, I guess this is just something I'll always have to live with. Pride, fear, anxiety, discouragement, bitterness, lust, greed, addiction. I, you can't conquer that stronghold. Let the Jebusites have it and we'll just kind of agree to just, I don't know, just live with it. That, that to me is eminently relatable. I can relate to that. For anybody who's like, I don't understand. These people had the power of God. Why didn't they just wipe it out? Dude. You tell me you've never had a stronghold in your life where somebody could say to you, but you're a child of God. Why don't you just overcome it? You don't understand. Stronghold. I can get past some things in my life, but not this one thing. It's got a grip. And that may seem to work. The problem is that may seem to work for a little while. The problem is that stronghold is taking up residence in a strategic place that God had other plans for. Let me say that again. If you've got a stronghold in your life, part of the problem, what you're not thinking about is God may want to be doing something right there in your life. And that stronghold is taking the place of that. What do I mean? Well, David has had his eye on Jerusalem. He's a new king. He needs a new capital. He has inherited a divided kingdom. The people not only need a strong leader, they need a strong headquarters. Think about it. David's current home is Hebron. That's way too far south, and those Yankee Israelites will never go along for it. See, The northern kingdom, it'll it'll displace them. So he thinks, okay, Hebron won't work. On the other hand, if he moves it way up north to Samaria or somewhere, then the southern tribes won't go for it. Did you know there's a reason in 1790 the early infant American Congress found a mosquito infested swamp on the Potomac and said, This will be good. Sorry, the swamp was D.C. I thought that would be evident (laughs) from. Still, yeah, not much has changed. All right, all right. Just jokes. In 1790, why did they pick D.C.? It wasn't climate. It wasn't because they, why? Because they realized we got all these colonies. D.C., if you look at a map, and back then, of course, the West hadn't been won. So, so it's smack in the middle. And they realized, David's doing the same thing with Jerusalem. He's saying, we, I, I, I need a central location to establish God's kingdom. Yeah, but the Jebusites live there. You'll never take that. Well, that's going to be a real problem for the Jebusites. Because that's where we need to be. In other words, you got to hear me. David was not okay to just live with an enemy having a stronghold in his kingdom. He knew God wanted to do something special in that space, and he needed to reclaim it for the glory of God. Let me say that again, and don't apply it to old Jerusalem. Apply it to the stronghold in your life. David was not okay to just remain letting a stronghold live. He wanted to reclaim it for the glory of God in his life. He knew he needed to reclaim that for the glory of God in his life. The ancient enemy of the people of God said the same thing your enemy says to you. You, you want to reclaim his stronghold? <laughs> the Jebusites said, good luck. Now, they didn't exactly say good luck. Here's how they put it. What they said is verse 6. Oh, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, here's how they said good luck, <laughs> you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. You see, there's two parts to that. You will not. You cannot. This business about the blind and the lame was ancient trash talk. The Jebusites were so sure of their invincibility that they they were saying, high up on these fortified walls, we can rain death on any would-be attacker You're not going to scale these walls. In fact, it would be so easy that if all we had in our army were the blind and the lame, we could still fight you and win. So you will not. You cannot. I know somebody needs to hear this this morning. Even though these are words of a 3,000-year-old Jebusite, they sound familiar. And it's because it's the same voice behind all of it. It's the enemies. It's lies. It's fear. It's intimidation. And most of all, some of you are bearing the weight of discouragement this morning because you're listening to the voice of a Jebusite who's saying, you will not take the stronghold because you cannot take the stronghold. He rains down condemnation. You've heard it so many times. You'll never overcome your bad habits because you cannot. You cannot forgive that person. You cannot move on. You cannot overcome that addiction. You will not move past anxiety. You will not heal from that divorce because you cannot heal from that. You will not be forgiven of that sin because you cannot be forgiven. Your marriage will not get better because it cannot get better. Your relationship to your children will not improve because it cannot improve. You will not get over your resentment and your bitterness because you cannot. This is the Beside voice, and it's still out there today. You—if if any of that sounds familiar, it's because you understand strongholds. It's like the devil's built a wall around it and defied you and defied the living God. You will not touch it. You cannot. That's a pretty good English word: stronghold. Strong enough to grip you so tightly and overwhelming, overwhelm you, and hold. Stubborn enough to hold on. So, we've got to draw this to a close and give you some hope. If you've ever heard what David heard from the Jebusites, you need this next word. It's easy to overlook, but it is a 12-letter masterpiece. And uh, this one might be pulling out your pencil and your Bibles and underlining. Don't miss it, verse seven. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Nevertheless, you say, uh, Sometimes I come with three points. Sometimes I come with one point. Occasionally I've been pointless. <laughs> but today, forget one point. I just got one word, y'all. The Lord laid one word on my heart for this church, for this moment. And the word is nevertheless. 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 Yes, the city was old. Nevertheless. Yes, the walls were strong. Nevertheless. Yes, those Jebusite voices were very discouraging. Nevertheless. I love how Max Lucado puts it. Wouldn't you love for God to write a nevertheless in your biography? Isn't that good? Born uh, uh, in such a uh, way. Both her parents were alcoholics. Nevertheless, she lived a sober life. He never got the formal education and was denied a lot of opportunities. Nevertheless. Look at the great career he built. Don't you love nevertheless stories? She was told she'd never amount to anything. Nevertheless, she flourished in life and love and family. He was addicted. Nevertheless, he broke free and walked in freedom. We need a nevertheless this morning. Of course, the burning question is how? How do we get this nevertheless? And it looks like at first, verse 8 is an attempt to answer that. Uh, But unfortunately, it's got all these references. Translators aren't even exactly sure how to translate verse 8. So we do the best we can. But if you're looking for a how to get your nevertheless from verse 8, you're not going to find it there. Here's what we get. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the, quote, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. We think what this means is, while the walls were indeed very strong, David knew, and I think, I think, it, it, one commentator at least pointed out, David has been an expert in guerrilla warfare. He's, had, he's been on the run. So one thing, when you're on the run with 600 people, you got to figure out how you're going to get them water. And so he knew all these little tips and tricks, and he knew that this walled city of the Jebusites was fed by the Gihon Spring. In fact, he may have pilfered some water from there along the way while he was hiding. He wasn't hiding very far from Jerusalem. And so, uh, instead of attacking the walls directly, he uh, goes all itsy-bitsy spider on him, and climbs up the waters. Nobody? <clears throat> and the trash talk here is turned back on the Jebusites. Remember, they said the blind and lame can repel you. And David said, well, I have hatred for God's enemies, so the quote-unquote blind and lame who are in charge of defending the city are about to be attacked. And that famous comeback gets so famous that the Bible tells us it's a proverb. It doesn't make any sense to us, but it would have made sense to the people. It was a common saying, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. Probably something like pride comes before a fall. So somehow he took Jerusalem. And I, it would be a shame if we got hung up exactly on how he took that stronghold. Well, that's not the point the writer wants us to get. He wants us to see that David knew God's promise could write a nevertheless over the stronghold. Verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. You see that? God wanted to do something great in that stronghold. He needed that space, and the stronghold was occupying it for too long. David was doing something great for the glory of God. Verse 10, though, is the how. Here's the how. David became greater and greater because of his great insight, because of his great wisdom, because of his great bravery, because of great strength. No. No. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. There it is, the Lord, the God of hosts. This God of hosts is one of the titles of God used frequently in the Old Testament. You could translate it, uh, 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 the God of the angel armies, the God who has a command over all heavenly armies and all cosmic forces, the divine warrior against whom no Jebusite stands a chance. This God of heavenly armies can write a nevertheless over any demonic Jebusite stronghold, both ancient or modern. God wants to write a nevertheless over the stronghold in your life today. And here's the thing. Only God can do it. There's no amount of inspiration from a sermon. Uh, There's no here's five steps to overcoming your stronghold. Jesus said once in the Gospels, you do realize Jesus said apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't it interesting, when Jesus came, his metaphors were basic necessities. He's like basically saying, do you realize how little power you have? You can't even provide the basic necessities you, live to, you need to live every day. That's why he said the most basic necessities in his day, symbols for the most basic uh, nutrients would be bread and water. And that's why when he came, he said, I am the bread of life. You can't even, you, you can't, this is the power of God. Y'all, only God can do it. You cannot defeat the stronghold in your own power. You can't use worldly wisdom to overcome it or outthink it. And I know you know that because you're sitting there going, well, yeah, if I could overcome it, I would have. But God can. We turn now to the New Testament in closing, Second Corinthians 10. Paul writes, this is the only time the word stronghold's is used in the New Testament. Here's what he says. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, we're humans, but we don't use human weaponry no 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 no. the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but it's god's power this translation says but have divine power to destroy strongholds so i told you i got a a, just a one-word sermon only god can write a nevertheless over the stronghold in your life only god can write a nevertheless over the stronghold in your life will you trust him Will you lean into him with everything you've got? He did it over and over in scripture. He can do it for you. Let me show you some of my favorite neverthelesses. David cried out in Psalm 31, as for me, I set in my alarm. God has done this for people for thousands of years. He's written a nevertheless over the stronghold. David said, David wrote this. This is Psalm 31 verse 22. I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. He's going to hear you when you cry. Cry out to him. Don't quit. Don't don't, don't give up and let the Jebusites just live there and assume it's always going to be that way. Let God write a nevertheless when you cry out to him. How about Jonah? Jonah cries out from the belly of the whale. This is Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, covered in fish guts. He says, so I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. And he did. Paul tells Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2, 18, men, all this trouble, there's a lot of false teachers, men who've gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection's already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. He has proved over and over he can write a nevertheless over your stronghold. You remember um, Pete, my friend of a friend from the intro? Um... His fear ultimately caused him to betray his best friend. And God took that, Pete, you know him as Peter, and God wrote a nevertheless over his story. And he told Peter by the seashore, nevertheless, you must follow me. And Peter preached with boldness and never looked back. And there at Pentecost, you see the apostle Peter, God wrote a nevertheless over his stronghold of fear. And you remember Joe who had all the family drama and eventually wound up in prison. Joe ended up okay. God wrote a nevertheless in the life of Joseph, and he became prime minister of Egypt. And what the enemy intended for evil, nevertheless, God worked for good. And that lady I told you about been in divorce court five times. You know what happened to her? God wrote a big old nevertheless over her story, and the last report had her as the first missionary of Jesus, running from the well back to Samaria to tell everybody about the man who offered living water. And what about you? You need a nevertheless. And only God can write a nevertheless, and he loves to do it. A musician is going to come and lead us in a time of response. It occurs to me there may be someone who's still unconvinced. It may be that someone who feels like my stronghold is too strong and somehow God will not fight for me and I'm never going to make it. And I got these promises of God, but I'm not going to make it. If if you you would, if you would, if you would come with me the dark Gethsemane. And if we could, in our mind's eye, somehow, together, collectively, if we could right now, behold the true and better David, God's anointed king, kneeling in the garden while his best friends, who should have been praying, were sleeping. And just like David, what was David's deal? David had his eye on a city called Jerusalem that would be his kingdom, a kingdom for all his people. And the true and better David, Jesus of Nazareth, knelt there in dark Gethsemane. And oh, y'all, he had his eye on a heavenly Jerusalem, a place for all his people. And that Jerusalem was a stronghold. And death is certainly a stronghold. The old Jerusalem was strong, but to reach this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, to win for us an eternal home, Jesus would have to cross the ultimate divide. He would have to bear the sins of the world on Calvary's cross. So there, on that Thursday night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew his time was come, and he wasn't afraid of death. He knew he had to face something no human could ever imagine facing. He knew he would have to bear the wrath of God. David took the stronghold because the Lord of the angel armies was with him. On the cross, Jesus knew the Lord of the angel armies would forsake him. So, in that moment, the true and better David prayed a prayer. And, y'all, the salvation of you and me and everyone you love hung in the balance of this prayer. You can read it in Luke 22, you know the prayer. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And the salvation of the world hangs in this next 12-letter masterpiece. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate stronghold you face is sin. That's what the stronghold is. It's just sin. The wages of sin is death. And the prayer in that garden, that precious, nevertheless, is like a life raft for you today. You cling to that. You look to what the true and better David has won for you. Only God can do it. He has spoken his once and for all, nevertheless, over the stronghold of your life. And so the next verse in your life needs to be the next verse in David. And David took the stronghold. And by God's power, so will you. Let's pray. God, we confess we are powerless. We can't take any strongholds. But you, the true and better David, who laid hold of a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city, just like the ancient David and his ancient Jerusalem, you spoke a a nevertheless over the strongholds of our life. God, grant us fresh faith and encouragement, not to just live with a stronghold, but to fight it tooth and nail to wage war against sin in our life not in our own strength, but in the strength you provide. And thank you, Jesus, for that ultimate nevertheless in the Garden of Gethsemane that you prayed for us and our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.